What is worship? This is uh, part one, first thing, of a four-part series that we're going to do. So we're going to do four Sundays, ending the last Sunday is going to be on preaching. Today is going to be on definitions, and then in the, what's, what is worship? And then in the middle, the other two, we're going to talk about what do we do when we gather together on Sunday morning, and more importantly, why do we do what we do on Sunday morning? Because that's what this topical message series is about. Why do we do So when Zeke said, hey, I need a breather, this was a perfect time to cut in on the dance, so to speak, and and let's let's slow down a little bit in our worship and figure out why are we doing. And I'm using worship now. You're going to see that I'm going to contradict myself in just a moment. So let me go ahead and start because I want to begin to adjust our vocabulary. To say what we did right then was worship is excellent and biblically correct. But it's only a slice of the pie a part of the definition of worship. What we're doing right this moment, believe it or not, is worship if we're doing it in the proper way. But we'll get to that in a minute. So this is one uh, introductory of four parts, and the series title is going to be Worship, not today's title, but the series title, Worship, and it's called Head, Heart, Hand, because that's what worship involves. It involves our minds, it involves the disposition of our hearts, and it involves what we do, the stuff, our members, our physical, not us as members, but your hands and your feet and your mouth and your tongue and your lips and your eyes. What do you do? That's what worship is about. Head, heart, and hand. But before we begin, let's pray and we'll just kick right in. Lord, thanks so much we can gather together, we can assemble to join what's going on in heaven right now. Lord, there's a congregation, Old Testament saints, and what history, church history is referred to as the church triumphant. All of the church, both in the Old Covenant and the New, are joined together, Lord, with, with angels and beings that we don't get as we read them. They're, they're different, they're spooky, and Lord, we can't wait to join them because there is worship going on. All the time. Lord, it's nonstop. Whatever we want to make of time. Lord, worship is happening. And it's happening because you're worthy. And it's happening because, Lord, you love to bless us in our worshiping of you. That's, that's hard to get our arms around. But, Lord, we want to worship you today. So, Lord, help me to do that in preaching and help all of us to do that in listening. Lord, a different, a different topic, a different technique than we normally take. Lord, more teaching than preaching. Multitude of texts, not just one text. Lord, it's your word, and we want to learn. So, Lord, tune our hearts now and our ears to hear you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is worship? Well, next slide will tell you what it is. New Testament worship is a positive activity that's centered on a person. That's our proposition today. That's the point we're trying to make. And and we're going to do our bullets just in those words. So we're just going to break that sentence down and explain every piece of that sentence. So New Testament worship is a responsive activity. And the grammar in the English could be better. I get that. But I've done it on purpose. New t- for those English teachers here, New Testament worship is a responsive activity that is centered on a person, capital P. New Testament, that's our first slide. New Testament. Now, that's the first part of the sentence. So, New Testament. Job 38, 
Job 38 tells us that when God, quote, laid the foundations of the earth. So there's no people yet. God is creating the planet. In one sense, this is before Genesis 2. 1, 2. God is creating the planet and the universe. When, when God laid the foundations of the earth, the angels, because they were already there, shouted and sang for joy. So worship begins before us. Worship begins before there was a planet. Worship is as long as there's been created beings. And we weren't the first created being. The created beings have always worshipped the supreme being, God. And they shouted and they sang. Before there was the first person, they shouted and they sang and they had joy. Now, heavenly worship still continues. Let's look at Revelation 4. It will be on your screen. Heavenly worship still continues. Here's a snapshot of sorts what heavenly worship looks like. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to... Day and night, they never... Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is... And is to come. Now, we'll, we'll go backwards to the book of Genesis now. That's Revelation. Genesis. Back to the beginning. Adam and Eve. Remember the story? Remember the truth? Here's the narrative. Adam and Eve sinned. An innocent animal was killed to cover the couple's sin. Then the couple was cursed. And then they were banished from Eden by God. But God's present mercy with them, his active mercy with them right then, And his promised mercy, what's going to happen ahead, was at work. So worship continues, even in a fallen and sinful world. Okay, now we're up to here. Now, this slide. And again, she bore his brother. I'll tell you what, I need to move forward so I can see where we are. Hang on for just one second. Sorry. There we go. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain, so this is the first kid born after the fall. And she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain, a worker of the ground. So we have a herder and a farmer. And by the way, the guy with the the sheep was more despised in, um, in culture then. There was only three, but always. Keeper of sheep was despised. Farmer, so a cattle rancher, eh. Sheep rancher, eh. Farmer, yes. Because we always assume that God liked one over the other because it was meat, not vegetables. No. It was the attitude of the heart. And again, she bore brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, which in the Old Covenant was commanded. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, which was commanded as well. And the Lord had regard for Abel, that's the point, and his offering. 
Now, we'll get to that next week. Fast forward to the Mosaic Covenant, not thinking that we need to detail the worship and sacrifices prescribed by God's law, not in this introductory message, especially given the fact we spent over a year in Romans and Ezra, so I think we understand the Mosaic Law. Fast forward now to the New Covenant. But under the New Covenant, much of that kind of worship, the Old Covenant worship, has changed. But the principles remain consistent. The principles of worship remain consistent since before the earth was. Praise, thanks, desire, trust, purity, sacrifice, service. The principles of worship in the new covenant involve all of us. Not just all of us, but all of you. Your your head, your mind, your heart, your emotions, your motives, and your hands, your physical body. And they involve all of you and all of me all the time. See, that's why right now you don't know it, but you may or may not be worshiping. God commands you to be worshiping right now as you're sitting there. You may or may not be. And all that we do under worship is under the authority, just like for the time of Moses, just like the time for Adam and Eve. It was all under the authority of what God had revealed to his people. Cain and Abel were doing something because mom and dad taught them what God told them. The Israelites did what they did in the temple and the tabernacle because God commanded with extreme specificity. And in the new covenant, by the way, we too have commands. So all of me all the time, always under his word. That's worship. So since we worship God in a new covenant, we call the sentence New Testament worship. But exactly what does the word worship mean? Is it unbiblical for some of our English brothers and sisters in Christ? Can you imagine? Is it unbiblical for them when the mayor steps in and they call him the Lord Mayor or they call him his worship? the mayor of London. Is that unbiblical? Is that idolatry? Or how about some of you that watch old movies or movies set, Downton Abbey or whatever, way back in the day? Are the old Anglican marriage ceremonies idolatry? Here's what the, here's what the, here's what the bride says. And it's funny, most people get angry at this one, not the second one. Here's what the bride used to promise. Love, cherish, and obey. Here's what the groom promised. Love, cherish, and worship. I think it's easier for the wife to obey if the husband promises to worship. But that's another marriage. (laughs) Is there a problem with that? No. No. All that does is reflect the range of the English word worship. It reflects the range of the word and it reflects the limitation of the word worship. That's why we have to be very careful when we bring the word worship into here. Or when you bring the English word worship into here and here. That's an English word. See, it's no different than when we say, you ever said this? You go to a conference or something? You're you're somewhere, there's a men's conference, there's a women's conference, there's a worship conference. And what do you do? You come back and you say, wow, dude, I really like the worship at that conference. Well, we're typically talking about two things, aren't we? Praise and music. But the words in the original languages of the Bible 
that we typically translate in English with the word worship, do you know that those words have little to do with praise and little to do and even less to do with music? Now, they're part of the package, but they're not the priority that we think about when we think about worship. Let's see if we can find a better definition. A guy named Daniel Block. Check out his definition. As a verb, worship involves one person's recognition. This is the English word. As a verb, worship involves one person's recognition of another person's superior status or honor. So if I'd been an Anglican two centuries ago and in Corinne's wedding ceremony, when I said, I promise to worship you, I will say a very biblical thing. I will hold you in higher regard than me. And I realize you're a gift of God. And I found favor with the Lord because of you. That's not idolatry. That's the Bible. And that's using a good English word to describe that. Now, as you can tell, it also transfers to God, which is why you see the word worship in our English Bibles, because there's the definition of that word, worth-ship. We're just acknowledging that someone is superior to us. So we now have to, we have a modifier. Remember our sentence? New Testament worship. So we're under the New Testament. Here's the baseline definition of worship. Next slide. New Testament worship is a responsive activity. New Testament worship is a responsive activity. Look at J.I. Packer. This is a Christian definition of worship. Worship in the Bible is the due response. It's what God is due. It's the due response of rational creatures, not, not this, not animals. It's what's due of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their creator. Worship begins with God revealing himself. And worship ends with us responding to that revelation. Worship begins with God and his revelation. That's why it's always under the authority of the word. We don't get to add stuff. And we don't get to make up stuff. That's called idolatry or disobedience. The worshiper responds to the one worship. Think vertical. Because the goal of biblical worship is vertical in its primary orientation, we're to give glory, we're to serve, we're to respond, and we're to respond and serve and give glory to the creator, not the creature. That's why it's vertical. It has horizontal entailments. It goes this way. But no, it's emphasis. It's orientation. I know this is not normal preaching. We're in a classroom. This, this, is, this is us responding to his revelation about himself. That's what worship is about. It's not about the creature. It's about approaching and worshiping and serving God. Imagine that. Now, just using that term, God or Lord or Christ, King, Creator, Redeemer, They all imply an authority relationship over us. The word holy, he is transcendent. He is other. It's talking about his moral purity, but it's also talking about he's, he's a little different than us. And he is above us. God as father. Don't think of your dad right now. Think of the fact that it's loving authority. 
God is king, Messiah, Christ. He is monarch. Jesus is Lord, capital L. There is a superior and there's us. So we submit ourselves to him. So we have to worship God on his terms, not on our terms. We have to worship God according to his will revealed in the New Testament and the Old Testament, not according to the whims of culture. Now, we'll talk about that more. What does that look like over the next two weeks? Why do we do what we do? But we've got to begin. It's about God and his will. See, because worship is Godward, we obey God. God who commands us to worship him. And he commands us to worship him in private. So that's why we obey him in private. And he commands us to worship him in public, to worship him individually, and to worship him together. So New Testament worship is a responsive activity, catch this clear carefully, of Christians. Remember the problem with Rome? What do we do with the Jews? Christians. See, a non-Christian, no matter what their descent, no matter what their ethnicity, a non-Christian, if you're not a Christian and you're in here today, thank you for coming. Oh, we, you're welcome. We love having you here. But do you realize you can't worship God? You can sing songs. You can perform an activity. You can do a lot of things. But you haven't submitted to his lordship. You haven't acknowledged him as who he has revealed himself to be. You have to repent and believe in his son. See, it's an activity that you participate in in the exterior. Please, you're welcome to sing and you're welcome to come and we always want to have you here. But realize, New Testament worship is a responsive activity of his people. You have to be a Christian to worship. Unbelievers do not worship God, and they cannot worship God. You see, unbelievers have to be regenerated. They have to have a new heart before they can even see God. They have to have a new heart and new ears, and the blinders taken off their eyes before they can hear God and understand God. That's through the gospel. They have to respond to the gospel. And when you, if you haven't yet, And when I, who did back when I was 15, when we respond to the gospel, then we begin worship. And here's another way to look at worship. Worship is about being a subject of his kingdom, about being children in his household, about being a member of his body, the church. And here's the way we typically think of worship. And this last part is a part, but it's not the whole part. Being priests who offer sacrifice with our lips. God commands Christians to worship together. Look at Hebrews 10. God commands us to worship together. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's the vertical aspect. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return drawing near. Do you you realize that, that Gathering together, corporately, to be doing what we're doing now, is not an option. Do you understand that's a a command? 
Think about everything you've read throughout the Bible that involves what we typically think of as worship. Altars, tabernacle, temples, psalms, the book of Acts, letters to the churches, the book of Revelation. Most all the worship terms that we traditionally think about involve us, not me. They're plural. They're God's gathered people. Worship. But see, worship also involves me and you individually as well. Our individual and our corporate lives, how we live individually and corporately, what we say and do apart from Sunday morning, and what we say and do on Sunday morning. Everything is supposed to be an act of worship. Come on, Jim, that's a little broad. Well, let's see if Paul agrees with us. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, all the things God has done, and he's outlined in Romans 1 through 11, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Other translations say service or service of worship. I love how R.C. Sproul translates what Paul is saying. He says, I beg you. Imagine Paul, Paul. I beg you for something that should flow out of the entire gospel. What is your reasonable response to what Christ has done for you? What's your reasonable response to what Christ has done for you? Do you know what your reasonable response is for all that I've outlined in the first 11 chapters of Romans? What's the response? Here's what's reasonable. Offer your life yourself. And that's a synonym for worship. Our worship is to offer our bodies, our entire lives, our head, our heart, our hands as worship to God. Look at Colossians 3. And whatever whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow, husbands, that would change our arguments with our wives. Do everything you do in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Can you give thanks to God the Father while you're going? And that wasn't tongues, by the way. 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So worship involves all of us all the time, all under the authority of God's word. So New Testament worship is a responsive activity, last point, that is centered on a person. Let's look at John 4. It's on your screen. John 4. Remember, Jesus is in Samaria where all the half-breeds lived. Remember when the two tribes, we've been in Ezra, two tribes got carried off, one into Assyria, the the, the, the ten northern tribes, the bottom half, the last two tribes, Judah, they're in Babylonia, they come back. The people that were left, that kind of merged with all the people, were the Samaritans. And so, eh, kind of Jewish, kind of not. Mixed with the people, not supposed to do that. So here's a Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Here's what Jesus says. They're in the middle of their conversation. Jesus makes a point. But the hour's coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now what's crazy is, I think that's the only time in the Bible we hear about the Son seeking and saving the lost. But I think this is the only time in the Bible we find the Father ever saying he's seeking something. 
He's commanding holiness. He's seeking. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, she's, they're talking about her adultery and stuff, and she's changing the subject onto biblical issues, issues of the day. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is also called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. They had this argument about, do we worship in Jerusalem or here on this mountain in Samaria? And we know Messiah is coming, and he's going he's gonna to sort all this out. Where do we worship? Where's the place we offer acceptable worship to God? Where's that spot? And here's Jesus' answer. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He just said, I'm the Messiah. See, whatever else those verses may mean about the role of the Word and the Holy Spirit and the worship of God, they certainly and clearly point to Jesus. See, instead of a location or a particular system, worship is about how we relate to Jesus. All of you, all the time, under the authority of God's word, who has revealed that Jesus is God's son. And worship is how you relate to Jesus. He's the place they were arguing about. He's the place where God is to be acknowledged and honored. See, <laughs> here's why unbelievers can't do it, no matter if they're whatever. Religious, wonderful. You cannot worship God apart from Jesus. You cannot worship God apart from acknowledging and submitting to Jesus. The devil knows who Jesus is and is yet to submit. So it's not just knowledge. He's got to be your Lord before he can be your Savior. You've got to submit and bend the knee and say, I give up. I'm stopping my life. I'm going to repent of all of this. Help me. I look to you. My righteousness doesn't do nothing. It's all about you and what you did and your righteousness and your death, and that washes away my sin. Help me. You don't do that. We can acknowledge the man upstairs, the supreme being, whatever. Doesn't count. Not worship. And you'll die in your sins and spend eternity in hell. See, you can flee the wrath of God. The first act of worship is repentance. But for the rest of us, it's, we're going to focus about why is it about Jesus? Well, look at what John says, John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, Full of grace and truth. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, show me your glory, Moses said. Now we can say the same thing. Show me your glory. And Jesus go, I mean, God goes, oh, you want to see the glory of the Father? That's easy. Look at Jesus. I want to know God. You want light to shine in your heart, the knowledge of God? Look at Jesus. That's why he says in the Great Commission, teaching them to obey my commands. Look at Hebrews 1. I love this. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, there's the cross, he sat down, he was resurrected and ascended, and he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, in the next three weeks, we're going to discuss the how of worship, okay? But what we're going to ask is, what are God's directions for how he is to be worshipped? Sincerity. Aw, authenticity. Now, we hear those mocked by a lot of macho guys. I just did it. Sincerity. Authenticity. But see, sincerity and authenticity are valid tests for worship. Let's not mock it. The majority of, if you want to know what do the prophets in the Old Testament talk about, that's pretty simple, really. Israel, you're going through the motions, you're not sincere, you, you come to the temple, and, 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 and you do all these things behind closed doors. You don't treat each other well, and you don't do this, and you don't do that, and you don't do this. And you, do. you are insincere. This worship is not authentic. God's going to carry you off into captivity. He's warning you, stop it and repent. There's all the prophets right there. So sincerity matters. It really does. It's a valid test. But it's not the only test. Jesus is uh, he's heading into Jerusalem. No one knows but him he's about to be crucified in a few days. He's heading in Jerusalem. All the people from Galilee who've seen him do all these miracles and stuff, they follow him. There's a group of pilgrims. That's what they do every year. They, they come down from the northern part of the kingdom. And they wander around Samaria, and then they come down, and they're in Jerusalem, and you always go up to Zion because it's on a mountain. So they're going up to Zion, and they're singing psalms of praise that were for that pilgrimage in the psalms. And they're singing them, and, and here's Jesus, and, and they all knew he is. I mean, the Nazarenes are like, yeah, he's, you know, he's Mary's son. Is he really, you know, what's up with that? But the other people who've seen all these miracles are going, this must be, God. this is the Messiah. They didn't get the God thing yet. This must be the Messiah. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are looking and going, no good thing comes for Galilee. We don't trust you. You're not upholding us in our political system. Um, you, no, 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 no. And by the way, if you were really the Christ, you would, you would tell these people to shut up. Why are they calling you Hosanna to the son of David? Tell them to knock it off. And Jesus goes, well, I can tell them that, but um, the rocks will start screaming it. Sincerity test. What are they all true worshipers? Absolutely not. A couple days later, they were crying out, crucify him. Sincerity is valid. It's not valid as a standalone. See, we get it, right? We understand that God cares about how he's worshipped. Next week, we're going to look at a couple of people God killed. They took worship lightly. And then they're dead. Can hardly wait, huh? That's going to be an uplifting message. It's not the whole message. It's this one section. But you understand? We, we get it, right? God cares about how he's worshipped. Anything goes as long as I'm sincere? No. No. You can be sincerely wrong. We approach God on his terms. See, you... We know, right, that when we're together on Sundays, do, 
we, we remember, when you came in the door, were you like me? No, I wasn't. This is hyperbole. This is how we should be. But when you came in the door, were you self-consciously remembering that we're not practicing in here what we will one day do up there? Now, if you've been a Christian for a little while, you know that we're joining in the praises of heaven this morning. And we're joining in with worship right now as we gather together corporately. But you know, this isn't practice. This isn't, wow, you know, one day I'll get to do that up there. You, you get that we're joining in with up there right now, down here. Now, it's going to be different. I get that. Please don't ignore that. But do you realize this isn't practice? Do you understand? Read Hebrews, the end. Do you, do, you, do you understand? Do we remember? Do we get that when we get here together on Sundays, that we have done the, <laughs> we have done the equivalent of what the high priest used to do one day a year and walk behind the curtain of the tabernacle to where the ark of the presence of God was? Do you know that, that this meeting in this dingy, dirty auditorium with us, and there's not even any air on today and it's hot, all of this, do you realize that we, we haven't done the equivalent? We have done the equivalent. We're not practicing and waiting for. Hebrews tells us we have entered behind the veil. It's the same as if you and I had walked into the Solomon's temple and pulled open the veil and walked in. Do you know we'd have been killed? We'd have dropped dead. That's why they attached a rope to him and why they had bells on the end of his, of his tunic. Because they knew if God didn't accept his sacrifice, they would hear the bell stop tinkling and he'd be dead. And they knew if they walked in, they'd be dead to get him. So they, just, they would just yank him out with a rope so they wouldn't die. Do, do you realize that that's here right now? Now, that'll make you listen different. We're not in fear of death, but no, we've entered, because of Christ, our union with Christ, we've entered beyond the veil because in him, in the veil of his flesh, he's gone into the Holy of Holies. And in Christ and with Christ, when we gather together, we are joining with those in heaven who are in the very presence of God. And we, too, are in the presence of God. We're two or more gathered in his name. He's here. And think about that the next time we receive communion. We won't have time to talk about that it's more than just a memorial meal. It's also the real presence of Jesus. Not in the bread. It's not a host. He's spiritually present. But he's, he's present. And he's present in a pronounced way if we will but see it. Just because I don't recognize that there are atoms here doesn't mean they don't exist. Oh, Lord. Tune our hearts, tune our eyes through your word so we can see and know what's going on. Oh, my goodness. We're joining in what's going on in heaven. Some would say that Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, last book of the Old Testament, is dominated by abuses that are relegated or related to worship, and that would be accurate. Here, Malachi sound like some churches you know. Now, obviously, we never listen for ourselves. We always listen for them. Contempt for sacrifices, boredom in worship, ministerial misconduct, ingratitude, stingy giving, arrogance. It's funny. Israel forgot what Moses told their forefathers. Check this out. Next verse. 
And now, Israel, here's the giving of the law. What does the Lord your God require of you? It's a question. What does the Lord your God require of you? But two, number one, fear the Lord your God. Number two, to walk in his ways. Number three, to love him. To Number four, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep, number five, the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. It was a question. What does God require of you, Israel? You know, it's interesting. The first requirement is fascinating. You see the first requirement, number one on the list? It's not the one we think of. It's the first one. Fear. Huh? Now, that was just for the Old Testament, right? Because, you know, fear in the Old Testament can mean terror or fright. And, and by the way, it should mean that if an Old Testament Jew was wayward or not keeping the covenant. That's why in Ezra all those people stood out in the rain. They're afraid. They're going to die. That's the fear of the Lord in one of its meanings. But it also meant, the word we saw for worship earlier, reverence for a superior. Trusting in awe. You are, of course I trust you, of a superior. See, that's what fear means. Reverence. Fear in the New Testament By the way, that's the word we get phobia from. The Greek word behind the word fear in the New Testament is where we get phobia from, our fears. It too expresses fright, and it should. Read some of Paul's questions when he says, excuse me, if you're still living like this, how do you say you're a Christian? Don't you know you might be going to hell because you're not a Christian living like that because Christians don't live this way? It should make you afraid. But what it typically means in the New Testament is devotion piety, and respect. You ever notice in Latin culture, respect is important? Guess what? In God's culture, in worship culture, respect, fear, first priority. (laughs) How do we apply that to Sunday morning? Well, can I borrow a word from Paul? Now, there's a smile on my face because I'm as guilty as you, okay? Can I borrow a word from Paul and beg you about something? Can I beg you a week from now at 10 a.m. to remember who's here? See, this is not a top-down gringo version of come on time. Respect. Not a me. And it could be a lot of things. I mean, Hebrews, which we're going to look at in a minute. We're not going to look at it yet. Hebrews has something to say about our whatever casual atmosphere that pervades South Florida. Our approach, our whatever, to corporate worship. See, it might be different for different ones of us. I, I, I can be guilty of all of these. Here's, here's what a lack of understanding what's up and who's up, who's here, and what this is about. You, you ever have this when you're, when you're not really thinking through who's here? You just get here whenever you feel like it. 
Or you just get here, but you're just a spectator. You sit here. You know, worship's boring. Worship's irrelevant. Irrelevant. Worship, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Nobody is saying that in heaven. We just don't get that we can't see, but we're participating in that. We are not simply spectators, and we don't come here to be served. Or, or how about you come here and you're checked out? I can be tempted with that. How about this one? Going through the motions because really we're distracted. I'm more thinking about what's going on later this afternoon or what I've got to do at work tomorrow. Can something kind of jazz me? Oh, I need a God in my own image because the way God's called us to worship just ain't quite doing it. Malachi's got something to say to you. Because you know what Malachi's thing was about when he said, there's malaise in the congregation of Israel. They're bored. They're whatever. I guess Israel moved to South Florida. There's too many other things we got to do. We're just laid back. It's island time. Guess what? Malachi said, hey, guys, <laughs> you want to know what the problem is? Oh, yeah. Do we need a hotter band? <laughs> That's not the problem. Do we need a Latin vibe? No. Haitian vibe? No, those are all good. We'll talk about that. Those are all good. Do, do we need? No, no, no. Do we need bathrooms that don't smell? Yes, but not for Malachi. What do we need? What's the, what, what is it? I just show up after this thing and I show up just for the real event preaching. The only event. I do, I do. You pick your poison. Malachi, he said one thing. Hey, you know what it is? You know, you know what it is? What's the problem? Well, Malachi, what's the problem? You don't fear the Lord. That's, there's Malachi in a nutshell. Worship stinks, or another word. Worship stinks. Right. You know why it does? Why? Well, it could be a variety of things. Here's what the priests are doing. And here, yeah, 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 yeah. But you know what the hard issue is? Eh, you don't fear the Lord. You don't get what's going on. You're not responding to his revelation about what's happening right now. You, including me, need to be under God's word and see what God says worship should look like and how do I come to God on his terms? Can I, can I gently remind you that God cares about how you and I worship him when we gather together as his people in this room on the Lord's day? Can I ask you to think through the word Fear. Devotion. Piety. Respect. Do we treat God, not as meeting, not your neighbor. And by the way, you're supposed to do that. But no, that's not the motive I'm talking about. Remember, worship is vertical. I, I, if I respect God, I'll respect you because he commands. You're not worthy of respect and neither am I. Spend 10 minutes in my mind. And let me spend 10 in yours. And we'll both get why there's a Savior. But see, I don't deserve respect. You, you listening to me lead worship? 
come on, I know how I sound. It's not, don't laugh that hard. Um, It's not about me or you. It's about responding to what he's told us about him and about who he is and what he's done for us. You see, he's holy and we're not. And if he saved you, he's declared you holy and righteous and just. And he's making you holy. And he's sanctifying you. And he's commanded that you come somewhere and worship with his people. And when you come somewhere and worship with his people, one of the things you need to think about, you as an us, y'all, ye, we, particularly in our culture, here, is what does respect look like for God? What does that look like? Now let's see if the Bible agrees. Jump to Hebrews. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Yes, he's he's telling all things. That's good. Now he changes gears a little bit. Because this kingdom can't be taken away, can't be shaken, it'll always be there, and God is faithful no matter what. Let us thus offer to God acceptable worship. And then he defines it. Hmm, sounds like Moses. With reverence and awe. Why? Because he's not a God after my making. He's a consuming fire. He is holy. And we need to respect and reverence him. Now, by the way, reverence doesn't mean reverence doesn't mean this week everyone has to wear a tuxedo. Okay? It's daylight savings time. Go early. Or that's coming up. No, no, no. You can still come in shorts. I don't care. We don't care. Your elders don't care. Believe me, if it wouldn't offend some people, I'd be wearing shorts right now. It's hot in here. But come And come next week going, what does it mean to respect the God that's an all-consuming fire? And by the way, leave today inside your head and your heart. And as you drive home and as you interact with your spouses and your parents and your friends and your kids, remember life is all worship? What does it live to mean before? What does it mean to fear God all day, every day, all the time? What is respect and awe and gratitude, worship, mean? Can I, can I beg you to do that? And would you beg me to do that? That's what this thing in Hebrews, I mean, uh, meant when it says, hey, by the way, when you get together, here's the things you need to do. It's just basically encouraging and begging one another to act like this is the God we served. (laughs) I don't know if God loves me. Well, I get that. Sometimes everybody asks that question. Um, All you need to do is look at what you deserve, who he is and who you are and what he's done to accomplish that bridge, and you'll know he loves you. The all-consuming fire is patient and shows covenant mercy to me. I don't have to ask about love. I'm not burning in hell. I didn't get up this morning going, 
and I violated the covenant. He loves you. Now let's respond to his love, his way. And one of those ways, reverential awe, the fear of the Lord, respect. Let's stand to our feet and worship our holy God.